All right, welcome back. Uh, so on time here, we're going to be um, going on with Dr. Del Rio, and uh, we're going to be talking about ending the HIV epidemic. We have our panelists back with us. Uh, they will be um, coming back here. They are appearing out of the blue. Um, so, Carlos, you want to take us through this next section? Yes, uh, thank you, Mike. I think that this is a, a, a fairly brief section of the guidelines, and it's only the only section of the guidelines that really doesn't have any specific or evidence-based uh, uh, recommendations. But I think it's also an important section of the guidelines because it, it does give uh, – it, it does help us understand how do we as clinicians can impact public health and can impact what are the lofty goals of trying to end the epidemic. And I think this all started really because we understood – that undetectable is, is untransmissible and you can actually prevent the transmission of, uh, of HIV. So, uh, so we're going to have a couple, of, I will say questions, topics to address and talk about. So I'll start with, with you, uh, uh, Paul Volverding. Can you tell us about what the UNAIDS 9090 initiative is and, and where do we stand with it? We got you muted, Paul. Paul, you're muted. You're not making much sense. Sorry. <laughs> uh, thanks, Carlos. Uh, as you said, we, we now have the tools, um, including U equals U, um, also PrEP, um, to uh, effectively end the epidemic. And the uh, UNAIDS in 2016, I believe it was, uh, set out the 90-90-90 goals um, for um, various components of, of re- a number of percent of people who knew they were infected, number of people on ARV, number of people who are uh, virally suppressed. Um, unfortunately, um, as these goals are often pretty ambitious, uh, uh, they're, they're not, they're not going to be met, uh, at the end of 2020, which is when they were, uh, targeted. Um, and, and I, and I'm sure we'll talk more about it, but I think the, the COVID pandemic throws another wrench into this um, in terms of uh, access to medical care and, and, and many other things. Uh, but we are making progress. Um, I, uh, the, uh, the UNAIDS uh, came out uh, just a, a month or so ago with a, with a summary that's really useful to read. I, I, I uh, looked at it today, and it's in our, in our paper as well. Um, and this is, this is a point that, you know, we'd like to get to uh, 90% of people living who are virally suppressed were, were not there, 59%. But that's a, that's a huge gain from where we were, uh, when these goals were articulated. So I think, I think this kind of approach from international organizations is super important. Yeah. And I think what you could see in this graph is that we still have 5.4 million people to get an antiretroviral therapy and suppress in order to reach this goal. I mean, it's, it's still a ways to go. But as you say, this, this goals were put together when there wasn't uh, the idea of access, uh, PrEP wasn't existent. We do know from the uh, universal test and treat studies that actually when this is done, we can actually achieve uh, this degree of viral suppression. You know, you can see uh, in, in, in search and other studies, you know, over 75% virally suppressed individuals. So this can be done. And if you do that, you don't stop the epidemic, but you can reduce uh, incidence by, you know, 20 to 30%, which is not insignificant. If you reduce incidence by 30%, it would not be insignificant. So what is, uh, who wants to just tackle what this, how does this move into 95, 95, 95, and, and how does PrEP fit into this? 
this is Raj. I mean, obviously, 95, 95, 95 refers to going up by 5% on each of those measures, the uh, diagnosis of people with HIV, the um, uh, treatment of people with HIV, and the viral suppression. I mean, I think one of the, the key facts here is, um, you know, do we need to also then incorporate adjunctive measures like pre-exposure prophylaxis? We, we know that here in the U.S., not everyone uh, by any means who would benefit from PrEP is on it. And um, in the U.S., that in part has to do with costs. It has to do with access to care. Um, it has to do with just, you know, um, providers um, um, bringing this up and, and um, providing PrEP. But I think um, there are pilot projects in, in um, resource-limited settings that have really shown the ability to, to bring people on to PrEP and add that as an adjunct. I feel, Carlos, you may have even written about this topic, and you might want to give your thoughts on the, the role of PrEP in terms of getting us to uh, getting us to zero. Yeah, well, we'll be, we'll be certainly talking more when we talk about pre-exposure prophylaxis, but without doubt, we have made a significant improvement globally in, in PrEP, but we're not nowhere where we need to be, and in the U.S. as well. I think among uh, black men, we've done a very good job. We haven't done a good job among, you know, African-American men, among Hispanic men, and certainly among women to increase PrEP uptake the way we should. And again, when we talk about uh, the COVID section, clearly it's another area that we're all concerned with COVID and what the impact is going to be. But I do think that these are important goals, lofty goals, but but achievable goals. And it's good to have goals because, that, again, it, it drives initiatives, it drives programs, it, it drives policy, and, you know, Imagine if we had said, oh, we're not going to address the HIV epidemic that we've done with COVID. Then if you don't have goals, you, everything goes crazy. But but it is actually this administration, the Trump administration, that last February I came up with an end the epidemic initiative for the United States. So so wants to talk a little bit about that and what that is. Mike, you were pretty involved in making this. So Mike, you want to say something? Can you get can you get off the, the mute? Yeah. Um so I agree. The goals are are really important. I think what's really getting in our way now is that, to me is that we're getting so distracted from what we had been focused on nicely in our country, at least in the U.S., um, on getting rid of HIV by COVID. And we'll hear more about that later from Raj. But uh, the, the goals really do help us. Um, get on target and I'm, I'm not sure how long it's going to take us to get back in focus because I, I, I'm feeling, I don't know about others, but I'm feeling like we're, we're in this vortex of COVID and it's taking our mind off of all the goals. Yeah, no, but I think if you look at the goals that were really fascinating and they were also very ambitious, right? Reducing new infections by 75% in the U.S. in the next five years. This was, this was an initiative announced last year in February. So we're talking about, you know, Four years from today, being 75% decrease in new infections, which are there are about 30,000, 35,000 today in the U.S. So think about reducing that by by 70% by 75% in five years and by 90% in 10 years. So you're talking about getting down to 3,000 new infections yeah. in the U.S. And you know it's it's pretty lofty, but it's not undoable. And again, this is a very targeted initiative. 48 counties, D.C., San Juan, Puerto Rico, where where 50% of new infections are occurring and seven states, and you can see where those are in the map. And the initiative really focuses on things that we as physicians do. This is very much a a, a biomedical approach. This is really about diagnosing people with HIV, treating them, putting them on antiretroviral therapy, you know, getting people on PrEP. So it really, a lot of it is really around what we do. So just, you know, sort of a final comment on this. What what can we as physicians do? What are our role as clinicians? To, to help address this, to reach the 
end the epidemic. Uh, maybe Paul or Raj, you want to say something? Well, uh, Carlos, uh, let me start. Um, I think one of the most important things we can do is to work closely with our health departments. And, and you know, in San Francisco, not we do, we do kind of pat ourselves on the back too often probably, but uh, but we have had a very successful mobilization around uh, around this here, and it's and I think a lot of this is going to be a local issue. Um, the, the epidemics are local, the, um, uh, the the resources are local, uh, and I think one of the most important things is the is the close integration between the physicians, the health departments, um, and the communities at at greatest risk. I mean, if, if that can happen, if that can be mobilized locally, then I think we can make this uh, we can really make some of these uh, uh, make make this progress. Yeah, it, it might be um, worth almost. Alan, Carlos, you want to bring that back up for a second because the, the the approaches are going to be a little bit different for each one of those. I don't know what to call them a pillar, but for each one of those. So yeah, so identifying the people in the community who have been exposed and infected and are unknown, that's a health department uh, interaction that's critical. Um, and then and then getting folks into care. Um, that's also there, but, but getting people on treatment, helping them stay on treatment, that's an internal clinic uh, initiative a lot of times, right? And what are the things that kind of help folks go? I've been finding that one of the best things we can use as clinicians in practice to identify the people who are most at risk of losing their the control of viral suppression once they're on treatment is looking at missed visits. If somebody doesn't show up to clinic, unannounced, like they're scheduled and they just don't show, uh, they didn't call in, they didn't engage. Those are the folks who are at most risk of falling out of care and also losing uh, contact with us and stopping their medicine. So a lot of programs I've seen have success with um, identifying those folks, calling them on the day after the missed visit and trying to get them to re-engage. I'm curious about other activities that other folks are doing that we can do in clinic. Well, there's one more, obviously, at the very beginning here, which is the diagnosis, right? We still struggle in many places to get people routinely tested for HIV, even in our healthcare systems. And I think that continues to be something that we have to pound on people, the importance of, you know, doing HIV screening. And nowadays, uh, we saw it at, uh, at ID Week, a study from, from, uh, from Chicago. Everybody's so focused on testing for COVID. And, you know, they were missing acute HIV infections by, yeah. by not integrating that. So, again, the importance of not missing the ball. I do think that this initiative of ending the HIV epidemic, focusing on 9090, the cascade of care, I think what it has done also to our clinics is it has put goals and metrics. And I think, you know, when you measure things and when you have metrics to look at, you pay attention and you try to reach them. And I think having metrics, I mean, when we were starting doing this, we didn't know how many people were suppressed and we didn't, didn't really mean much, but now actually it means health departments are looking at it. The country's looking at it. And I think it makes a big difference. So people pay attention to things that you're actually measuring. And I think that in a way it's a, it's a good thing. So any, anything else that, uh, all, I, I, thought, all facts or, I, I thought that comment you made about Chicago is maybe worth reiterating. This was a really interesting study looking at um, the impact of COVID on HIV testing and, they had two kind of groups. They had the emergency department at Chicago, um, University of Chicago, which put together kind of like a fast track, um, uh, testing center for, for example, people presenting with influenza like illness to test them for acute HIV. But then they also had a number of auxiliary centers that they've worked with for years that the HIV testing rates dropped by 30 to 50% in the, in the auxiliary uh, centers around the time of COVID. 
Um, but what was happening in the emergency department is that they actually picked up a kind of a record number for them, uh, patients with acute HIV, double what it had been in the prior three years. So it just showed a couple of things. One is, um, uh, not everything is COVID. And if you come to the emergency room with a, a flu-like illness, um, it might be COVID, but it could very well be acute HIV. And so the importance of testing is critical. And then also it makes me worry that some of the engagement efforts that were going on prior to COVID are, are foundering around a, a prep and around a testing and around, um, you know, getting people stably linked. So I, 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 there's a lot to be done, but we've made so much progress in HIV uh, that we just can't lose that progress, um, you know, despite the overwhelm we need to deal with, with COVID. Well, you know, it's really interesting that you mentioned COVID uh, because not long ago, a couple of weeks ago, there was a patient here that I was got involved with that had, you know, that had pulmonary infiltrates and a negative COVID test. And, you know, I looked at the patient and said, this patient has pneumocystis, but they were wanting to do another COVID test. The reason I got consulted is because they wanted to get ID approval to get a second COVID test because this person had infiltrates consistent with COVID. Yeah. And yet this patient had this HIV with pneumocystis. So, again, emphasizing the need that we need to continue thinking about the common things, right? Yeah. My, my, one, my one comment would be uh, that 5 to 10% that we need to overcome towards the end of this uh, epidemic is going to be our hardest battle. And I just want to encourage all of us to stick with it. That health disparities are real and it involves all of those pillars in the CDC of testing, responding, diet, you know, treating, keeping adherent, et cetera. So it's going to take that, that 10% is going to be, is going to be tough. Yeah, it's that's a great point, Davey, because uh, I heard somebody say one time that the, the problem with hard-to-reach populations is that they're hard to reach, just as a rule. <laughs> I think that's, uh, you know, one of the other things that makes it so challenging is that um, the reason they're hard to reach is the reasons are so diverse that no single approach ends up working. And that's... I feel like that explains a lot of why the, the studies on medication adherence are often negative because the the cause of the, the poor engagement or poor adherence is just A to Z and beyond and no one thing seems to take care of it. But absolutely, absolutely true. And then the other component, I was involved in a study in which we were doing, you know, uh, you know, uh, patient navigators and financial incentives to get people who are not adhering and who are not in clinic to get to clinic and then suppressed. And when we had the the navigator and the financial incentive, we were actually were able to get about 40% of them, you know, suppressed and doing better, maybe actually above 40%. But the moment we removed the incentive, it went back to baseline. And again, emphasizes that a lot of these interventions need to need to be ongoing and continuous. And therefore, as, as David said, it's getting that that additional 10% is going to be really expensive. It's not cheap. <laughs> I wonder no, what we think about uh, populations aren't hard to reach. We're just not very good at, at looking. Um, so, you know, well, people obviously true. have medical approaches to, to a lot of things, but I wonder if you think cabotegravir rolpivirine um, will make a substantial difference in in people who have had trouble adhering to, to oral a- antiretroviral therapy. Did ACT well, be studying I'll, that? But do you do you think in your I'll, mind that that will make a difference? I, I think you know it's being studied. The ACTG through the latitude study is looking at that, and I think it's really actually a very exciting study because that's a really important question to answer. And I would say that uh, that we need the answer to that question. It's a really important question that it may actually be a difference. But I think you, you know, Paul, you're absolutely right. I I don't like the term, you know, hard to reach populations. I I like the term hardly reach populations 
because they that's what we do. We don't reach them, you know. As somebody said to me one time, somebody said, look, I'm an African-American person. You know, I am one of your hard-to-reach populations, yet I'm here with you. <laughs> so I think we, we need to remember that hard-to-reach is, is actually a misnomer, and, and what we need to do is figure out the community approaches and the other things we need to do. And I think we as clinicians have a really important role in, in re- I would say re-engineering our clinics. I'll give credit to my colleagues, Dr. Armstrong and Dr. Colasanti, who have really worked on re-engineering care for people who are having trouble coming to what we call the regular care. And I think at the end of the day, we may need to have, I think nowadays, I was talking to somebody this morning and saying, you know, you have in one point the regular clinic that we have structured. On the other point, you have, at the other end of the spectrum, you have telemedicine. And in the middle of that, there's probably a bunch of other things you can do. You can do an open clinic. You can do a mobile van. There's all sorts of different ways to provide care that may be, you may need different approaches and not one approach fits everybody. And I think we've learned also, I think the last thing I'll say is that the nice thing about the UNAIDS uh, initiative and what the work, uh, you know, some of the UTT studies have done, the pop art and, and church and others, is they actually have shown us in very difficult conditions in, in sub-Saharan Africa that you can actually do this. And I think there's a lot of lessons from Sub-Saharan Africa that we can then bring to our country about how to implement these programs and how to do it appropriately. And I think that South-North collaboration actually may get us a lot of this. I mean, th- th- I think that in Africa maybe it was easier because there was nothing there, so you can build it from the from the get-go, right? You can start building it to start. Here we have a model, and we're trying to fit things into that model as opposed to saying, okay, we have nothing, let's figure out what we need to do. Right. I've, I've seen a couple of projects that are pretty exciting where uh, activities that have worked in sub-Saharan Africa about bringing people in for diagnosis and treatment are being applied to rural areas, for example, in rural Alabama, but there's other places. And the way it's been done is to go into the community, not with a preformed program that you say, here, participate, but rather work it the other way around, gather groups together of the, of the vulnerable at risk populations and say, here are the challenges. What do you suggest be done to address this and then let them come up with a solution? And it could be different community to community to community, but by them solving the problem for themselves um, or coming up with a approach, there's more buy-in and it's more likely to work. It's, it's a partnership, right? At the end of the day, what Paul Wolverine said, work with your health department. I would say work with the community and figure out how to do this. But again, at the end of the day, it would be fantastic if we can actually decrease HIV. I mean, we can increase the level of biological suppression and enough people on PrEP that we actually decrease, uh, you know, new infections in this country in a significant way. I think it will be a very cost-effective way to to address this epidemic in the absence of a vaccine. This idea that you mentioned, Carlos, of microepidemics is a really important one. And Judith Feinberg had a very nice talk at ID Week about this issue of microepidemics uh, here in the Boston area, one of the issues, and we'll, when we talk about PrEP, I think we'll come back to it, is um, uh, uh, ongoing transmission and, and people who inject drugs who are or, or or who are homeless or both. And so the you know that that's an area we had made progress in the past on reducing injection drug use related HIV, but there have been these outbreaks not just in the last months to, to year or so. And so, I'm actually how do we target those? Um, and we're actually not, not addressing that in our guidelines, but I'll just make a comment that I think, again, a lot of the progress we had made addressing the opioid epidemic is actually being reversed because of COVID. 
and we're seeing an increase in, in overdoses. We're seeing an increase in use. We're seeing an increase in, in, in high risk uh, use of drugs. So I suspect we're going to start seeing an uptick on HIV infections as a result of that because yeah. of <clears throat> Carlos in San Francisco, we've seen a dramatic increase in overdose deaths uh, just in the past year. And it's a lot, a lot of it is certainly from, from the COVID uh, situation. So it's, it, you know, and I, and I worry too that we've seen r- reports of decrease in prep accessing. Um, we can talk about this in the prevention section, but uh, again, um, uh, we're so distracted as a, as a, nation by by what we're going through that it's it's a challenge yeah and i think i'll just finish you know we're almost done with this section but i'll just finish by saying that as we you know we'll see what happens there's going to be a new election etc but i think somehow we need to make sure that this two issues the opioid epidemic and the hiv epidemic uh are not we we need to get back on addressing them and put it back in front and center because otherwise years of gains are going to be lost very quickly So thank you very much. We'll end that section now. Great. Can, um, feel free to continue to put questions in the chat and, uh, or I'm sorry, in the Q and A to be more specific and yeah. um, we'll try to come back to those as we move into our, our, um, our next section. So our next section is going to be moderated by Dr. Davey Smith from University of California, San Diego. And this is on this, um, um, uh, very important uh, topic of laboratory monitoring. So, um, Davey, I'll, I'll take the, I'll, uh, throw things over to you.